1: You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. How are you doing today? I hope you're doing fine. I just had a haircut. I know you're fascinated to know this. Um, I just had a haircut. And so I'm feeling all sort of fresh and new with my hair at a reasonable length again. It always makes me feel a bit better after I've had my hair cut and just feel a bit more presentable or something. And also I can now feel the air on the on the very back of my neck, which is quite a nice feeling. Okay, but also I'm feeling good because, as you know, I live in France, right? And, um, so obviously when I go and get a haircut, I have to do that in French. I have to get my haircut in French, which means that, you know, I have to have conversation with the hairdresser, with the guy who cuts my hair. I have to talk to him in French. And this does kind of relate to the topic of this episode, by the way, which is a conversation with Steve Kaufman today. He's not my hairdresser. (laughs) No, Steve Kaufman is my, is my guest in the episode today. And um, Steve is a a polyglot. He speaks lots and lots of different languages. And that's kind of what he does. Uh, He learns languages. And he he learns them well. Okay. But anyway, back to my hairdresser appointment um, from this afternoon. So, yes, I have to make conversation in French during my haircut, right? While I'm having my haircut, I have to chat away to the hairdresser. Now... It takes me about 30 minutes to get my hair cut. It's not very long, but still, that's enough time. And if you are a long-term listener to this podcast, you'll know how I feel about getting my hair cut. First of all, I find it a bit awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, And secondly... I have to speak French. And so it, it's like an awkward situation made even more awkward by the fact that um, I suddenly feel like I can't escape. You know, I just have to speak French. And um, sometimes that can be, uh, I don't know, a little bit embarrassing. This is complicated. Obviously, it's, this is my own personal struggle. Uh, But you know what it's like when you're trying to speak another language. Sometimes you just feel a bit shy. So that's kind of the way it is for me in French. But today, I'm actually quite pleased with myself because I managed to maintain the conversation for about 30 minutes without feeling completely ashamed or without feeling completely ridiculous. Okay, I managed to have a pretty good conversation about a few different things, with my hairdresser. Now, it helps that he's a nice, understanding person, and he kind of uh, understands me, and he knows me, and he makes an effort, and he's sympathetic and stuff like that. That obviously helps, because when you're having a conversation with someone who is judgmental, or not very patient, or who doesn't care about you, that is a horrible situation because you feel uh, stupid and and they don't really make an effort to be patient and to listen to you but my hairdresser is not bad and he is um you know he's a nice guy so anyway that's that, I feel good I feel like I've made an improvement I feel like my french is slowly improving this is another story for another time about me and my french and I have done episodes in the past about about this subject Exclusively about this, but um, anyway i 'm feeling quite good today because uh, I feel like i I actually managed to have a pretty good conversation I, I still feel like i'm i'm at a kind of a b one level, honestly, and you might be thinking, but Luke, you live in france what 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 are you doing um yeah i mean i've many many excuses of course we shouldn't make excuses we have to kind of um actually do things to improve our language learning, not just make excuses. But my excuses are, you know, that I I work in English. I do this podcast in English. I speak at home to my wife in English. And so there's not a lot of French in my life, except for those moments when I am out and about or moments when we have uh, a dinner party or something and I'm sitting at a table and everyone's speaking French and then the pressure is on. And that's a difficult situation to improve. Another language in when you're surrounded by people and you feel very nervous, and you've got you know, you, you're the odd one out because everyone knows what's going on, and you're you know, it's like you're trying to watch a tennis match, you know, your head is going this way, left, right, left, right, and eventually you don't realize where the ball is anymore. Um, so stress and pressure it's not very good for language learning, but anyway, I'm feeling quite good today because I did all right, and that's good. That's a way of s- sort of putting me into a more virtuous cycle of motivation and success, which hopefully will feed itself. I've been reading more graphic novels in French. I've found that this is a thing that that really works for me. Graphic novels, you know, uh, not comic books. That's what we would, that's the term we use to describe the things that children read. You know, there are pictures with speech bubbles. Okay, that, there's your comic books and stuff, you know, like Spider-Man and stuff. But Graphic novels are the same thing but for grown ups. So, I like to read graphic novels in French. I find that works for me. So, anyway, there you go. I just felt like saying that. Now, let me stop waffling and rambling here and get into the conversation that you're going to hear today. So, as I said before, this is a conversation with Steve Kaufman. He is a Canadian polyglot. A polyglot is someone who speaks lots of languages. On Wikipedia, it says that Steve speaks twenty languages. Twenty, yes. Now, that's one of the first questions I ask him in this conversation: is actually how many languages do you speak? And he actually kind of clarifies, but at, but he has learned to some degree about twenty languages. These days, he actively use he doesn't actively use all of those languages. But anyway, Steve is a very famous um, polyglot. He's been interviewed lots of times on lots of different channels and shows. He's been featured, you know, in uh, on the news in various countries. Uh, he's written articles for Huffington Post in the in the, in the United States and in Canada. Um, he's very well known, and it's about time I interviewed him on this podcast, right? Uh, so finally, here it is now. I'm going to ask Steve questions that he has been asked before, but I'm saying that because I'm sure that many of you listening to this haven't heard all those those interviews with him that he's previously done. So the main aim here for me in this episode was to find out from Steve how he does it. How does he learn these languages? What are the insights that we can gain about language learning? Okay, And the idea is that I'm trying to encourage you, listening to this, to... Maybe improve your habits or improve your attitude, or maybe not improve it. Just feel, like, feel reassured if you're doing a lot of the, the right things, according to Steve's method. And just to consider what Steve does. he's a successful language learner. Is he exceptional? Is there something special about him? Is he unique? Or does he just do things that if we all did, would, would gain the same results? Like for example, if I spent my time in the same way that Steve does, if I spent my time working on my French in the same way that Steve works on his languages, I would probably see the same results. So, you know, it's about attitude, it's about habits, it's about time, it's about motivation, all the things that I have talked about before. Anyway, what can we what insights can we gain from Steve Kaufman about learning languages? So we talk about that sort of thing. And then in the second half of the conversation, we sort of I asked him some other things about his career and about his experiences because he's had an interesting life interesting career uh, working as a diplomat a Canadian diplomat and also working as, as a businessman in Japan and in other places so it's all language learning stuff in the first half and then just chatting to Steve about his life in the second half actually before we go any further I feel like I need to give you some basic Kaufman facts, Steve Kaufman facts, just to help contextualize things. So, Steve is from Canada, so you're going to hear Canadian English being spoken here today. What else? He was born in 1945, so he is in his 70s. All right, so that's another thing to consider. It's interesting that someone in their 70s is learning languages so actively and so successfully and also worth noting that a lot of steve's language learning has happened later in life in his in his 60s and in his 70s like fair enough as you'll hear he learned things like french spanish uh mandarin chinese japanese um in his probably in his 20s 30s and 40s but um he has continued to learn languages successfully through middle age and into his 60s and 70s. That's an interesting thing. Also, Steve set up and runs a language learning website called LINK, which you might have come across. That's L I N G Q pronounced LINK. So um, when he mentions LINK, he's talking about his language learning website, which you can find on the internet. So there you go. That's probably all I need to say. Canadian man in his 70s continues to learn languages successfully, as he has done throughout his life. So here is what I hope is an interesting and insightful conversation with Steve Kaufman. And here we go. Hello, Steve. Nice to talk to you.
0: Luke, nice to talk to you.
1: How are you today? I am fine. I'm
0: absolutely fine.
1: It's the morning for you. It's the evening for me. You're in Vancouver. How is is Vancouver? Well, I I,
0: I don't know how Vancouver is because in the winter, uh, the rainy season in Vancouver, uh, my wife and I come down to Palm Springs here in California where it's sunny every day. So here it's sunny. I imagine in Vancouver it's raining. (laughs) Right. You don't need to worry about that. It doesn't rain every day, but it rains a lot.
1: No, I don't care. Wow. Palm Springs. How nice. So it's great to be able to speak to you. You've been interviewed lots of times before about language learning. Yes. And I was wondering mm-hmm. how I could possibly ask you something that you've, you haven't been asked before. And I think I probably can't. No, oh, all right. So we might go over some of the same ground that you've covered in previous interviews, but we will see. Mm-hmm. That's okay. So first of all, let's just sort of like cover the basics, I suppose. So you're obviously you're known as a language learner, one of the most famous in the world, I would say. Wow, I don't know. That's amazing, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so, how many languages do you do you speak?
0: Well, you know, when you say speak, I have spoken twenty, let's say. Uh, I have uh, interviews on my YouTube channel where I have spoken 20 languages. Uh, But I would say that perhaps a dozen I could easily speak and another eight I would struggle, either because I'm in the process of learning them, say Persian and Arabic, or because I, I, you know, developed them to a certain level, went to the country, spoke it while I was there, and now I would have trouble. Uh, I would have to refresh it. So, sort of, yeah. And of the 12 that I speak, you know, I would say... Uh, maybe half a dozen I speak quite well, and then less well as you proceed
1: down the list. So, half a dozen that you speak quite well, you say. How, how do you define quite mm-hmm. well?
0: Well, in other words, I can have a comfortable conversation. I'll make mistakes. I'll be missing a few words. I will understand just about everything that's said. Uh, but I'm sort of more comfortable in some than in others. I can express myself more accurately, you know, in some, whereas in some of the weaker ones, I'm. I'm uh, looking for the words that I really know I know and try to build what I have to say around those words, whereas in the languages that I speak really well, I can just say whatever I want.
1: You can say whatever you want in those languages you speak really well. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Now, most of my listeners um, are probably trying to learn one second language. Probably there'll be others who who have got several, but most of them are just trying to deal with English and trying to learn it really well. Um, so, why, why, for you, Steve, why so many? Why so many languages?
0: You know, it's just circumstance. I didn't set out to learn a lot of languages. Uh, the first language that I sort of learned to a uh, sort of level of fluency was French. Because I got very motivated, I had a teacher who made French civilization very interesting to me. I ended up going off to France. I took my university training in France. Then the second language that I learned was Chinese, because I was working for the Canadian government, and they wanted to train people in Mandarin Chinese back in 1968, so I was sent to Hong Kong, where I learned Chinese. Then uh, we were transferred to Japan, so I learned Japanese. Uh, You know, when I was traveling, uh, when I was a student in France, I used to hitchhike around Spain, so I learned Spanish. And then once you realize that you can learn languages, and you think you know how to learn them... It's fun. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm discovering so much about Iran and the Arabic world just by learning those languages. And every language that I have learned, you know, I learned so much about the country and the history, and it triggers a, an interest in, in those countries. And so all of a sudden, you know, the world, different parts of the world, you know, come alive. Areas where you have nothing but sort of vague stereotypes, those places come alive. So it's just interesting for
1: me. Yeah. You kind of put it in a nutshell. You know, you, you, you went to work in Hong Kong and you, you learned Chinese, you learned Mandarin Chinese. Uh, mm. How?
0: <laughs> well, when I was in Hong Kong, and bear in mind that in 1968 you had the Cultural Revolution in China. And uh, the objective, we were going to, Canada was going to recognize the People's Republic of China. So they felt it probably wasn't politically appropriate to send me to Taiwan. So I went to Hong Kong, which is not a Mandarin-speaking place. However, I had three hours a day, one-on-one, with Mandarin-speaking teachers. And I spent the rest of the day reading and listening. Uh, I read enormous amounts of Chinese. And that kind of, you know, established in my mind the idea that to learn a language, you need to listen and read a lot. Like, a lot. I'm talking millions of words. So that the brain gets used to the language and uh, and you start to discover the patterns of the language They can be explained to you. You may or may not understand or even remember the explanations. But more than anything else, you just have to get the language, you know, flowing into your brain so that the brain will gradually start to get used to the language.
1: How long did that take then to go from absolutely nothing well that was actually that's quite that's quite intensive isn't it what you were doing there very you know with chinese that that, you know three hours of one-to-one and then lots of time reading and listening uh that is very intensive
0: it was the most intensively i've ever studied a language um not only did i have three hours one on one but i spent i I must have studied seven hours a day like i'd go home i'd practice writing because you have to write you have to learn the characters and I would listen to my open real tape recorder or I would read and I would go down to the bookstores in Hong Kong and look for readers, you know, where you have Chinese with glossaries for every, every chapter. And, and, uh, it was very, very intensive. Like I was obsessed and it took me from, from zero to where I read, I remember I read my first novel, uh, after about seven or eight months. And, uh, I wrote my, um, I had to write the British foreign service exam. And I think I did that after eleven or twelve months. But we had to we had to translate newspaper editorials from English into Chinese, from Chinese into English. You know, writing out by hand, kind of thing. Mm. So it was a very intensive one year.
1: Yeah. And how was that year? Were, were there not moments in that year where you felt kind of demoralized, demotivated, where you felt like this isn't working? How, you know, did you hit a wall or something? Not, never.
0: Never. I have hit walls now because I'm not doing it quite as intensively, right? So there are days when I say, holy cow, I've been at Persian and Arabic for over three years and I still can't speak the language. And, and so I'm very much aware of the sort of plateau where you're, you're not progressing. But in the case of my Chinese, it, it was, first of all, it absolutely fascinated me. Because what I was reading, I was getting you know short stories, Chinese literature from the 1920s and the 1930s learning the whole of you know Chinese as a as a language culture civilization everything about it was so totally new and different that I was just obsessed I just kept reading and learning and and uh, never had that sense of hitting a wall in fact because I was progressing so quickly I and holy cow here I am six months into the thing and I'm I'm reading all this stuff and understanding it and no uh, I I think there's a I think Uh, One of my conclusions at that time was if you are able to do it very intensively, the way I did it, you will you will learn, you know, geometrically faster because you're just bombarding your brain with the language. And all the other sort of other diplomatic students in Hong Kong, there were Japanese, there were Europeans. uh, They learned more slowly than I did and they learned less well. And uh, I just I just was totally into it. And so within a year, I did better than they did after two years. So intensity is, is good. If you have I'm not sure I could do that again, but besides, I was working for the government, they paid me my salary. I had a job, learned Chinese. Mm. So whereas now, if I can get in an hour a day, an hour and a half a day, every second day, that's all I do. So the, the intensity isn't there, But intensity really pays dividends.
1: What about when it came time to, I mean, you, you were speaking with your one-to-one teacher, but when mm-hmm. it came time to actually start using Chinese um, in diplomatic situations, how did you feel?
0: So uh, the first opportunity would have been, uh, they had this sort of Canton trade fair twice a year. And so even as a student, after six months or so, they, the Canadian government sent me up there and so I was sitting in, uh, I can't remember exactly how many months it was, but I would sit up there and, and the, the job was to help Canadian businessmen who were in, in Guangzhou, uh, you know, in their business dealings with the Chinese. Hmm. So I would sit in meetings and yeah, I would struggle at first to uh, translate, and, uh, but uh, you struggle and it gets better. <laughs> you know, that's all. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and I mean, even in Hong Kong, our teachers who were from Beijing they would every so often have dinners at their place or we would go to lunch, you know, and so we'd be speaking some in a more sort of informal environment. But even in our one-to-one sessions, uh, we very quickly abandoned any formal instruction and they were just, we were
1: talking most of the time, one-on-one. Right, okay. You never felt sort of, you never had one of those days where... Uh, you, you kind of things didn't sort of come out right, or you made misunderstandings, you may have felt like oh, you made a fool of yourself. Did you ever feel like terribly
0: never bad felt at the end of like the day? A fool. No, no, but uh, you know, one of the things they would do is they would drill you. They had these uh, expansion drills like, I am, I am a man, I am a man from Canada, I am a man from Canada studying Chinese. So they'd have these expansion drills, and there were days when you say, jeez, do I have to do this again? You know, so some days, you know first thing in the morning, some days you're not as awake as on other days, yeah. but never, no, never any sense of, gee, I said something wrong. You're going to say something wrong. I'm going to get my tones wrong and all this stuff. It doesn't matter. Didn't matter. One interesting thing, I feel that my Chinese is better now than when I graduated mm. or when I finished my program there. And part of it is I've done a lot of listening to Chinese, uh, you know, audio books or, uh, you know, CDs or whatever. Uh, but, but the language continues to gestate. So one of the interesting things that I've noticed in many languages is even if you're not spending time with the language, the fact that you have put so much effort into the language, it's now kind of fermenting in your brain. And so actually I would say that I speak all of my languages better now than ever, just because they've had, maybe because I've learned other languages and and the brain just becomes more and more flexible. A lot of stuff that you have learned and forgotten is still somewhere in your memory reserve so the question is, are you able to retrieve it or not? Uh, and I think my ability to retrieve it improves. I think for sure my pronunciation in Chinese has improved since the time I was studying it intensively. Hmm. So if you put a lot of intensive work into learning a language, it will continue to, to gestate in your brain, yeah. to bake.
1: <laughs> yeah, or, 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 or yeah, to, um, to age. I mean, it's like, languages mm-hmm. are, like, are like wine then, I suppose. Yeah. Absolutely. Or cheese. Or cheese, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. Although past a certain point, you <laughs> yeah. got to watch it. After a certain with point, it's a bit too much, yeah. But, yeah, with certain kinds yeah. of good, if it's a good wine, you can, you can leave yeah, it yeah, for a long Wine's a better one, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. But, um, I mean, again, you've probably been asked this before. Do you think that you are uh, a special case or do you think that, you know, the experience that you've had is universal?
0: Uh, I think the big thing is motivation and time. Uh, I often quote this uh, professor at the University of San Diego who said there's only, there's only, well, she said, there's only three things that matter in language learning. Uh, the attitude of the student, the time you spend with the language, not reading an English grammar book about Chinese, but with the language, and then your ability to notice what's happening in the language. And I think anyone who is motivated and spends the time will develop the ability to notice. And uh, yeah, circumstances favored me, but... Uh, you know uh, different language environments, but I remember uh, I was at one of these uh, language, you know, polyglot conferences in Montreal, and I was speaking to a group of about five hundred polyglots people who you know came to this thing, and we would have, uh, you know, go to a, a bar or cafe in Montreal, and everyone would have their the flags of the languages that they spoke, and there were lots of people there who spoke seven or eight or nine or more languages, but I remember asking this group, I said, how many of you uh were brought up in a multilingual family you know looking for things that maybe made this group different Mm. and hardly anyone put their hand up so these were people who were motivated to learn languages and and there's no question that once you learn one and then another and then another uh, and once you sort of recognize that it's not such an extraordinary thing to do uh, and you have the confidence that you can do it and you put the time in and you enjoy the process if all of those things are there, you're going to learn. If you don't resist the language, a lot of people, when they're older especially, they don't want to change. They don't want to, you know, take the risk of trying to pronounce the language the way it's supposed to be pronounced. They kind of hang back in kind of their own, you know, native language or other languages that they know. So there's a lot of attitudinal things there, but fundamentally I think everyone can learn. Some may learn better than others, but everyone can learn.
1: What do you think it is that stops people?
0: Well, they're not confident that they can do it. So if you're going to climb a mountain and you don't think you can reach the top, you probably won't reach the top. Uh, You know, if you look at countries like Sweden, where everyone is exposed to programs in English, say in American or British TV programs. And so by the time they start school, they've heard so much English that they all speak well. I mean, some differences, but they all more or less speak well. Um, so I think it's exposure to the, it's attitude, time with the language. And with that comes this ability to notice what's happening in the language. So noticing that, in fact, they don't pronounce it this other way, which is based on how that would be pronounced in your language. Actually, it's pronounced this way. You know, a lot of people, uh, people learning English, for example, they will pronounce English words, uh, based on how that word would be pronounced if it were written in their own language. Mm -hmm. So you have to overcome that you have to start noticing that knowing English English has a very messed up writing system And you actually have to learn how to pronounce each word. You can't just rely on how it's written But you have to notice that
1: absolutely so you talk, you talk a lot about input and listening a lot and reading a lot. Is there, is there no place for you for the sort of deliberate practice in language learning? For example, you know, doing some controlled practice with certain grammar points or, um, you know, pronunciation, controlled pronunciation practice. How does that kind of deliberate practice fit into learning oh, a language for you?
0: I think it can help. It depends how much time you have available. Mm-hmm. So if, in my case, I had six, seven hours a day to spend on learning Chinese. So I am sure that we practiced specific points of grammar uh, in our, you know, one-on-one situations there. Uh, I think, though, people are a little bit, it's very difficult. You can practice, like I've often, you know, talked about the third-person singular of the present tense in English, which Mm -hmm. takes an S. And you can practice that all you want uh, until that slots in as a natural thing to do. People are going to continue to, you know, when speaking on the fly, they're going to not have the S there. And at some point it clicks in. Uh, So I think a lot of these points of grammar with enough exposure and with enough practice too. I mean, I'm not against output. I think it's eventually to speak well, you have to speak a lot. You have to speak a lot. It's just that I don't think you need to speak a lot at the beginning when you have few words, when you don't understand. Uh, when you have enough of the language that you can understand that you can have meaningful conversations with people then you should have lots of conversations um, but uh, so yeah if you have a lot of time sure do drills whatever I when I don't when I'm only spending an hour or two a day I prefer to spend my time on on input because it's easier to organize uh, I don't have to set up a time to be with the tutor online to do sort of specific drills I've never I, I have I, I, you know, in the language that I've learned since Chinese, I've never found the specific drilling of particular grammar points all that helpful because by the, the next day I've forgotten it, it. It's, you know, it just will click in at some point. And um, yeah.
1: So when does speaking… But actually, everyone's different. Yeah. Everyone's different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When, when does actually speaking come in for you? So you, you, um, If we start with uh, taking, you know, learning a language from scratch. Mm-hmm. You start reading. Okay, let's 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 do that. Let's start with learning a language from scratch to I can have a conversation in this language. Um, okay. What, what's your very first step? So you've been doing Arabic and Persian recently. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about, mm-hmm. let's say Persian. How did you start?
0: Yeah. So obviously, with both Arabic and Persian, you have a big issue, which is the writing system. Uh, it goes from right to left. Uh, the symbols are completely foreign. Uh, they, in fact, the individual letters, they change depending on whether they're at the beginning, the middle or the end of a word. So that's a major obstacle. So when you start out, when I listen, it's just noise. I don't get anything. It's just absolute noise. The writing system is just a bunch of squigglies. Zero. So what I do is we have at length we have these mini stories where the same story more or less repeats five times. different person, different tense, uh, you know, a negative, a question, but more or less the same stuff is happening five times. So, and we have 60 of them. So I do the first lesson. I listen to it. I understand zero. Then I go sentence by sentence, looking up the words. And in the case of Arabic and Persian, I have had to put separate effort into try, trying to get a, a toehold on the writing system. And, and slowly, slowly, by dint of, uh, you know, occasionally reviewing what the symbols mean, Then again, looking up words, then listening to that sentence, and and then maybe listening to the next sentence. And and then I gradually progress. So I I understand 30% of lesson one, I move to lesson two, and and I understand 30%, I move to lesson three, but then I go back to lesson one. And over the first three months or so, I will listen to those stories. It adds up to about 30 times or so, like many, many times. Looking up words, reading it again, listening again. I'm at an early stage when I'm discovering the language, so my tolerance for uninteresting content is quite high because I'm quite interested in trying to discover the language. And so that'll go on for like three, four, five months. And then I start moving to more kind of meaningful content. It might be something on history or it might be, you know, uh, in the case of Persian, I had uh, this collaborator in Iran create 26 episodes on the history of Iran. Followed by these, again, these circling questions. So there's now more interesting. It's the history of Iran, But it's the same process. Listening, reading, looking up words, listening again, reading again, still not understanding. And I just keep doing that. And when I reach about five, we count the number of words you know at length. So when I reach about 5,000 known words, then I'm kind of motivated to start talking. First of all, I now have phrases that have been bouncing around in my brain. Plus, I can understand some. So there's no point in having an online, you know, chat or, you know, lesson with someone when you can't understand what they're saying. You can't keep on saying, I beg your pardon, beg your pardon. Mm -hmm. So, but at that point, we can have a, a limited conversation. We may, for example, what I did with Persian, because we have these mini stories which include questions. So then I would read which is very helpful because I was trying to learn to read this Arabic uh, script, right? So I would read, read it wrong, she would correct me, I read it wrong, correct me, and then having read a little section, then she would ask me questions. The questions would, in fact, be the very questions that were in the text. So I I knew the answer, so I could answer. So that got us into it. And then pretty soon, within a couple of weeks, I'm no longer interested in doing that. So then I stray into other subjects. And we talk about a variety of other things and gradually the range of things that we talk about. And pretty soon we're talking about the history of Iran.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's amazing, yeah. But your, mm-hmm. your level of motivation is incredible. And also your tolerance for, uh, you know, not understanding what you're reading oh, yeah. is impressive, too. Because I think that's, yeah, a, that's a reason why people don't, maybe won't follow that technique. Because they're just, you know, the, the tolerance for sort of failure is pretty low. Exactly.
0: You know, I say you you have to have a high tolerance for, you know, uh, fuzziness, not understanding, making mistakes, all of those things. Uh, that's absolutely key. But tolerance for forgetting. You're going to forget. And in fact, forgetting is good. You forget, you relearn. You forget, you relearn. It's in there somewhere in your memory reserve. Eventually, you'll be able to retrieve it. Just accept the fact that you are putting stuff into your brain uh, and just keep going so that all of that doesn't bother me. I know I am moving forward. I know that in other words, the key, the key measurement in language learning to me is not what's achieved, how well you pronounce, how well, you know, how accurately you speak. The key measurement should be your activity level. If you are active, spending time with the language, you will get better. So the only thing you need to worry about is, you know, my actions, How active am I? Am I listening? Am I reading? Am I speaking? Am I doing things? If you are, you're getting better. Mm.
1: This is very reassuring to hear this, Steve, because uh, Mm. these are sort of things that I've come to myself. I mean, I'm I'm not really a language learner. I mean, I sort of try and speak French in my daily life. Let's not talk about that because, you know, it's... (laughs) I mean, when I'm talking to you, and there's me like tr- struggling to speak French. But um, as an English teacher, which is you know what I've spent most of my life doing and working on, and desperately right. trying to help people to improve their English, and doing this really? podcast for. 14 years now as well. Just right. like banging on about all this stuff over and over and over again. I have said many of these things too. It's about time and motivation and practice. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. the equation and uh, it's like climbing a mountain you know, you don't don't mm-hmm. look at the whole thing like you have to do it in one go. You do it step by step, and just sort of try and enjoy Absolutely. it. Uh, motivation, mm-hmm. you know. We've talked about all these things before, so this is very encouraging uh, stuff. It's just a, just that people just actually have to have to do it, um, and also enjoy those moments of uh, progress. Those moments when you do mm-hmm. anything, when you manage to succeed Absolutely. in any way, uh, mm-hmm. you kind of enjoy those things. Um, If you were if you were one of my listeners, right, let's say Mm -hmm. you were, you know, someone trying to get over the intermediate plateau. What would you do if you were that person?
0: Well, uh, I would say find find things. First of all, every opportunity you have to speak, speak, obviously, Uh, without worrying about how you do, how you sound, mistakes you make. Anytime you have an opportunity to speak, go for it when you're with people and so forth. But there are many things you can do even when you're not with, you know, people where you can speak the language. So, as you know, I believe in listening and reading. I think audiobooks together with ebooks are tremendous. Because I, I believe that if, if I hear a non-native speaker of English speak English, the person who impresses me the most is the person who uses the language well. Who has, you know, uh, a good vocabulary, whose choice of words... Uh, the order in which the words, you know, are are put together, that's the person that impresses me the most. Not necessarily the person who is trying desperately to have an American accent or a British accent, but who can't use the language very well. So the focus is on building up vocabulary, building up, you know, natural phrasing. And I think if you listen to any kind of audio book, whether it be literature or self-help books or you know, maybe books on your area of, uh, you know, marketing, if you're in Mm -hmm. marketing or whatever. Mm -hmm. And especially if you can access then the transcript, because when we listen, there's lots that we don't understand. And then I always like to have a transcript. So then I can go in there and if I use link, I save words and phrases because I want, I want to mine this material for phrases and structures and uh, even in terms of introductory phrasing or how I want to be able to structure my language when I use the language. So I think there's a lot that can be done just through listening and reading in an intelligent way. And then when you do have a chance to speak, just go for it. Don't worry about how you sound. And, and in a way, you have to sort of project yourself as... So if I'm speaking French, Japanese, Chinese, whatever, I just see myself as a... I'm a speaker of French. I'm a speaker of Chinese. I'm not sort of this timid non-native speaker attempting to speak the language. I just am a speaker of the language. Mm. So you've got to have that kind of a positive, you know, self-image. But also, you know, build up your weapons. Build up your vocabulary, your phrasing, your comprehension. Comprehension is big. If you don't understand what the other person is saying, you're at a big disadvantage. You're intimidated. If you understand everything, you can struggle a bit to speak. It doesn't matter.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, going back to that thing about saying, don't feel timid about speaking another language because, I mean, mm-hmm. no one owns no one owns language, do they? I mean, there's no intellectual property yeah. rights on language, as far as I know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's totally open source. So people learning English, English is yours. Oh yeah. I've, you know, it's 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 it can be difficult to talk about language learning. It becomes a bit sort of metaphysical or something, doesn't it? So metaphors mm-hmm. are quite useful. Do you have any favourite metaphors or analogies for learning a language?
0: For me, of course, it's a voyage of discovery. Because so my situation is different. Many people learning English they need English. They need, need English for their job or because they're going to because they are uh, you know immigrants or they're planning to emigrate, or they're planning to go work in London or New York, or they want to go to university, so it becomes a necessity. Mm. So that puts pressure on them. For me, it's just a voyage of discovery. But I think also, um, you know, when you speak another language, it's a bit of a game. You're imitating. It's almost like you're play acting. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, there, there's a bit of an unreal there. Real is my own language. When I'm speaking some other language, I'm play-acting. I'm pretending to be, you know, French, Chinese, Japanese. Yeah. So it's kind of fun that way. But that's my dilettante approach. Uh, but when you're in serious situations, I mean, when I did it in Japan, I did business in Japanese. Everything was in Japanese. It wasn't a game. We were talking business. Yeah. But, uh, but still, I have a sort of a lighthearted approach to it. Uh, I don't worry. And, and I should point out, too, we were talking about people being afraid to make mistakes. Uh, I have done business with so many people, either in English or in their language, but when we speak English, you know, it doesn't matter, like Swedes who speak English very well, they still make mistakes. Germans who speak English very well, they make mistakes that reflect, you know, structures in their own language, and that's very hard to get rid of, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't impede communication, Mm -hmm. Uh, nor does an accent impede communication. Uh, I think very often the sort of accent thing becomes a bit of a vanity project, you know, uh, I'm going to speak with so little accent that no one can tell. We can always tell. Very rarely you find a non-native speaker who learned the language as an adult who can be, you know, completely mistaken for
1: a native. Unlikely to happen. And why would you want to do so, that anyway? Unless you, I mean, only, only a spy really would want to do that, right?
0: Well, no, no I mean, okay, you want to, obviously the goal, uh, the pronunciation goal is the native speaker. At some level, whether it be someone from Scotland or Britain or Australia, it doesn't matter. Uh, Scotland is in Britain, but you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, at the moment, yeah, so, at so, the moment, Steve. Yeah, at the moment, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but but that's the model that you're trying to imitate. So it's normal. I'm trying to imitate. So the closer I get, the better it is. Of course, mm-hmm. yes, you want to. Uh, But but, so there is the sort of ideal, ideal goal is to sound like the native. It's like, ideally, I play golf. I would like to I would like to hit the ball like Tiger Woods. But I'm never going to do that. And that doesn't prevent me from enjoying golf. So my ideal is to speak like, say, a native in French or Japanese or Persian. I'm not going to do that, but it doesn't prevent me. I can have that as a goal and yet be perfectly satisfied with achieving much less than that goal.
1: Yeah. Aim for the stars, hit the moon. Right. (laughs) Kind of thing. You still hit the moon. It's not bad. (laughs) Right.
0: It doesn't mean you're falling flat on your face. Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay. so learning language is like it's a voyage of discovery. Um, I've Mm -hmm. heard you mention before that I wonder if you remember this, uh, that learning English or learning a language is like mowing your lawn in your garden
0: oh yes i use that as a because uh, because many people feel that they have to absolutely master something mm-hmm. so if they go into a lesson they do a lesson i gotta master everything in this lesson i'm gonna master the basics and it's just not realistic uh if if i do a lesson or if i listen to something i can understand it 60 percent, 70 percent, and then i'll move on and i'll go back again later on and i'll pick up what i missed so in a sense i was just thinking of that because i was mowing my lawn and i let it grow a bit long so i adjusted my lawnmower so it wasn't cutting quite as close to the ground right so then i can push the lawnmower it's easier to push the lawnmower mm-hmm. i go one pass at that higher level then i go back in and adjust the lawn more down and then i pick up the rest uh, of uh, <laughs> of, the, of the of the lawn right yeah so by having had two passes, three passes going You know, skimming it the first time, getting a little deeper the second time, that's fine. You don't have to master stuff when you first go at it. Make it easy for yourself.
1: So a nice short, uh, a lawn with like short grass is the goal Like you want your lawn to be, um, uh, you want the grass to be cut so it's all neat and short but since you've left it quite long because you've been in palm springs palm springs and you've you haven't been mowing the lawn in vancouver you've left it let it uh, grow quite long but you can't get that goal with the first in one go because it's it's too hard it's too hard it's you can't the machine won't do it it'll clog up the machine and you'll fail and and it's you know so you have to just kind of Just as you say, skim the very top of the grass, and then come back and do another pass, and do it again, and again and again. And and rather, so it's again, it's like the mountain metaphor. You can't climb it in one single step. You can't eat a. uh, uh, You don't. You wouldn't eat a pizza in one single go. How do you eat an elephant? You eat it one spoon at a time. How do you mow your lawn after you've left it for ages? You skim it, and then you skim it again, and you keep skimming it until you get to the desired. exactly yeah okay
0: and I might add I might add that you know we have these mini stories at length which are basic that's where we begin yeah yet I can always go back to the mini stories and I will always notice something that I hadn't noticed before a word that I still hadn't remembered or a structure you can always go back always go back and find things that we hadn't noticed before so we're not going to pick it up all of it the first time so we can always go back and go back and go back and notice different things If we're paying attention.
1: Mm. Repetition, 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 Mm -hmm. repetition, repetition. I don't know how many...
0: Repetition and novelty. That's the other thing that I say. You know, this I quote Manfred Spitzer, who is a German neuroscientist, who says that the brain requires repetition, but also novelty. Novelty, You can't keep on feeding the brain novelty, Yeah, new stuff. The brain wants new stuff. You can't just feed it repetition. Uh, You've got to give it novelty. And this gets back to this whole idea of interleaving. You can't give the person, you know, here's this list of words, learn them. By the third time you're going over the list of words, you're not learning anything. Uh, You have to move on and come back. It's interleaving, go and study it over there and then come back here and then maybe hit the same basic vocabulary or or same type of content in some other context and then you come back again. So it's it's sort of a, a, you know, grazing type of process. It's more effective than the sort of block learning you, you can't just pump stuff into the brain repetition 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 there has to be a mixture we need repetition but we need novelty
1: so we're like cows really in the way that cows eat we are. grass yeah. right yeah, that's Here's, us. there's another one <laughs> learning a language is like a cow eating grass because right
0: because you got to keep moving if you, if you stay in the same sort of Part of the field, all the grass will be gone. you got to move to some other areas and eat some grass. In the meantime, that
1: area will have grown some more grass. <laughs> and also, <laughs> isn't it true that cows have got several stomachs? So a cow will yes. it'll pi- take loads of grass, chew it for a while, swallow it, sort of digest that for a bit, and then they'll, it, they'll bring it back and swallow it a bit uh, and chew it a bit more, right? That's a very good metaphor. I like it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's a little disgusting, but... Um, Yes. I guess it works yeah, yeah. that's how it works that's how it works yeah so there you go chew on the language swallow it leave it let your stomach try and digest it bring it back up <laughs> uh, chew on the and, and it is it is amazing how sometimes you'll be reading something
0: in a language you're learning and, and you come across some vocabulary which will trigger the memory of some other vocabulary that you'd you know put into your memory reserve long ago and all of a sudden it comes up Mm. And you can't control that. But that's, those things do happen.
1: Yeah. Okay. Another one for you. Um, I've heard you say that uh, learning a language is like cross-country skiing. Mm-hmm. Do you remember saying that?
0: Well, I, I, I have done a lot of listening to... Well, it is in two ways, really. Number one, because when you're cross-country skiing, very often, you know, you're on a plateau. So you're just going. Mm-hmm. So you may as well enjoy, you may as well enjoy it. The scenery, like when I go cross-country skiing, I'm going through the forest or whatever, and I'm enjoying the scenery. But the other thing about cross-country skiing, it's just like jogging, it's a great opportunity to listen. So I have gone through the forest listening to Russian novels and cross-country skiing, and I'm out in the cold, and it's a beautiful day. And so it's a great language learning environment. I think when, if we can learn while we're active, I, I think there's some evidence that that's good, that the brain is... Kind of uh, chemicals are running around in the brain that help you learn. So, Mm. being active
1: and learning is good. There's probably people listening to this right now in the gym or running somewhere. (laughs) If that's go for it, good. Keep it up, guys. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to ask you actually about just your your experiences. So, I mean, um, you know, you've you've, you've sort of had many different uh, lives, sort of thing, Um, Mm -hmm. like. I understand that so you first came to Europe in when you were a teenager is that right so you grew up you grew up in Canada uh, and then at some point you came over to England and then France right what happened
0: yeah well you know I actually I was was working uh, on construction in the summer and I decided I wanted to go over to Europe so I went down to the port of Montreal And for three consecutive, you couldn't do this today, but for three consecutive days, I went to these ships that were in the port and I said, I'd like to speak to the captain. And they said, fine. Today, there'd be a metal detector or something, you know, but, and I I said, I want to work my way across to Europe. And so on the third day, there was a German vessel and the captain said, sure, we lost a sailor, went overboard in Quebec City, so you can come on.
1: Wow, really? Well, they had a space because yeah. one of the sailors had gone overboard and hadn't yeah, survived?
0: he took off. Yeah. Not gone overboard. Like, he just oh, left. He just he left. Oh, okay. He, I yeah, thought he really died. And yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We no, need. No, a... i didn't throw him overboard. <laughs> oh, no, I shouldn't have gone overboard. He left them. He, he, he went um, away. So, yeah. AWOL. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah. So, I spent 10 days, you know, pounding on rusty metal and scraping metal and painting. That's all there ever was to do on the ship. Yeah. Uh, but then I hitchhiked around Europe and I ended up in, in France and studied there for three years.
1: You you already spoke French when you arrived, did you?
0: Oh, yeah. Because I had my sort of moment of discovering French when I was at McGill University. And I had this professor who made it all very interesting for me. So, therefore, I was motivated to go. To, I wanted to go to France and study in France because I became so, you know, interested in French.
1: Okay. And you studied at Sciences Po, the university?
0: Yeah, first year I was at uh, Grenoble, uh, and then I and I started studying political science there. I don't really know for what reason. And then I transferred to Sciences Po. I got a scholarship from the French government. So, uh, first year in in Grenoble, I I had about three jobs selling newspapers on the, you know, in the cafes on the main square and and uh, teaching English and all kinds of stuff. And then I got to Paris and I had a scholarship, so things were
1: improved. Right. So your French was at a decent enough level to be able to study political science at university. Okay. And then, so then you ended up, you you were a diplomat, but you also spent time selling Canadian lumber, like wood and stuff, right? Right. So first of all,
0: um, I was accepted into the Canadian Diplomatic Service, largely, I think, because I wrote the Foreign Service exam as an Anglophone in French. So that improved my odds of being accepted, right? Uh, There weren't that many Anglophones who would have written that exam in French. Uh, And then I heard that the government uh, wanted to train people in Chinese. So actually, I started taking Chinese lessons in Ottawa. And then I went to the director of the foreign uh, trade commission service and said, look, I hear you're going to send someone to learn Chinese. I'm your man because I've already started doing it. Why wouldn't they choose me? I've already shown an interest in, in, in learning the language. Yeah. So then I was sent to Hong Kong to learn Chinese. Thereafter, I ended up in in Japan, Tokyo, at the Canadian Embassy. And then I was looking after forest products within, you know, in the commercial section of the embassy. And then a company out of Vancouver was looking to set up their own office in Tokyo. And so then they recruited me and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I said, okay.
1: Okay, so you were there in Tokyo essentially selling Canadian wood to the Japanese. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's a big market. It was a big market, so I set up an office for this Canadian exporting company, and we had uh, yeah, and we were selling lumber, and uh, I did that for one company, went back to Vancouver, and then I was recruited by their main main competitor to go out to Tokyo and do the same thing again, both lumber and pulp and paper products again to Asia, like main market being Japan, but also uh, the other markets of Asia. Okay. How, what was and then in 1987, I set up my own company in, in forest products exporting to Japan.
1: Okay. All right. What kind of forest products? Just big lumps of wood?
0: Well, it, yeah, I mean, it's typically, um, you know, lumber. It's, it's sawn lumber. Uh, and particularly with my own company, we were making, uh, you know, kiln dried and plain the components of different sizes to suit the specific needs of the Japanese market.
1: Okay. What was your experience in Japan? Uh, that was the eighties.
0: So uh, I lived in Japan basically much of the seventies, like uh, seventy-one to seventy-seven, and eighty to eighty-two. Yeah, and then I was traveling to and from Japan throughout the eighties. And then when I started my own company, in eighty-seven, that continued. Uh, you know, three, four times a year, I'd be flying off to Japan to meet with our customers. Um, yeah, my experience was it was wonderful. Japan has a wonderful. Wood Mm -hmm. culture—the way they appreciate wood—was very interesting to me. Uh, Once you speak Japanese and you can deal with the downstream people, uh, it's—it's—it's—it was wonderful. They were very, you know, accommodating, welcoming, and accommodating. And uh, they—they, you know, you have to. All you have to do is you have to. I mean, it's a very demanding market. You have to uh, give them what they want, and uh, understand. You have to understand what they want. And, uh, you know, we were shipping lumber to Japan. We were shipping containers with 30,000 pieces in the container, uh, you know, 22 millimeter by 57 millimeter by one meter long 1.3 meter. And, and they had to be, the knot size had to be just so, and we had to measure, you know, take samples every so often and, and send them Graphs of the upper control limit, lower control limit of knot size and twist. And so. I mean, it's very, very demanding. Yeah. And inevitably, inevitably, you uh, have problems, quality problems, and then you you have to oh, I apologize. I will get the whole plant floor together, and we'll talk about this, and we'll fix it. And you have to demonstrate the sort of commitment. I mean, it's it's a serious, it's serious. Yeah. But at the same time, then there are moments you you play golf with your customers, or you they take you out uh, for dinner and. So it's, it's it was a wonderful experience all around and very educational.
1: I'm sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, I lived in Japan for two years, but I mean, that was, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 2002, 2003. Um, but in the 70s, I guess it must have been fairly uncommon for a lot of Japanese people to see a Westerner.
0: Yeah, it wasn't that uncommon. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say that uh, in this, if I compare Japan in the 70s to now they were more conscious of the fact that you were a foreigner. So some of them didn't like you. Other people gave you special treatment, but you were always different. Yeah. Whereas now that's not so much the case. You're just person A and he or she is person B. And and there's less of that sense of us and them, uh, which was more there. But they were still overwhelmingly nice to me, I can say, Mm. overwhelmingly pleasant experience sometimes i made them feel uncomfortable they didn't know how to deal with the foreigner kind of thing but mm-hmm. but uh, that became less and less the situation and and i find now you have japanese people all over the world uh, doing all kinds of different things it, japan has opened up a lot since since the 70s mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: absolutely okay um so going going back to the fact that you're you're learning arabic and persian at the moment mm-hmm. and so you're reading a lot of uh content in those languages about mm-hmm. uh so you y- you like to read sort of non-fiction or historical um uh, accounts and things don't you you like to read the history of persia yes. and so on
0: right now realistically uh in arabic i can't do that very well arabic is very difficult because you have sort of standard arabic which is almost it's not a real it's not the language that people speak to each other so then you have to get at least a smattering of Egyptian Arabic and Levantine Arabic so, so that you can at least have a chance of understanding the movies and stuff like that. Mm. So Arabic is it's a long road. Like, I'll never get to be very good in Arabic. Persian, at least it's one language, one country. Uh, and I have this person uh, who has given Link so much content in Persian, including on the history of Iran. But a lot of it, too, it triggers an interest, right? So I'm, I, I go through her material on the history of Iran, which is a little easier, uh, and, but then I'll read in English about Iran. So mm-hmm. through the language, even if I'm not reading about the history of Iran in Persian, it's triggering an interest in Persian history, as is the case with Arabic and Turkish, for that matter. I just get interested in the, in the area, so I read it in English as well,
1: yeah. On, yeah, on the history and the culture. Yeah, I see. Have you learned anything interesting, then, about... Those places.
0: Well, I think what's really interesting is is to follow the development of Islam and the expansion then of, of Islam and the Arabs out of Saudi Arabia into you know uh, the Middle East and eventually into uh, into Iran and the extent to which the Persians were so influential. First of all, within within the uh, you know uh, Islamic state, you know the Abbas, particularly under. I think the, the first group was the Umayyads and the next group were the Abbasids or something, but very much influenced by Persians. And in particular, uh, sort of Eastern, Eastern Iran, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, the area around Central Asia was a major center of, of civilization and learning and mathematics and science and philosophy a thousand years ago. I never knew that. Mm. And those people were particularly influential. Uh, in the development of the whole Middle East and stuff, so you just you learn a whole bunch of stuff, um, and and of course pretty violent history, I guess, uh, and you know, and you got the Ottoman Empire and the Arabs and the Persians, and then of course India, which was very much influenced by at least the Persian language, because uh, the Mughal Empire, those were essentially Turkic. And then, you, again, you learn about the sort of interaction between the Turks and the, and the Persian speakers and the Turkic language speakers. And uh, it's just fascinating.
1: Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's absolutely never ending. Mm-hmm. And when you then yeah. use the language, you know, when you actually speak the language, you know, you sort of start to get a taste of you somehow enter the world of, of, of it all, don't absolutely. you?
0: Absolutely. And, and in Vancouver, we have a lot of immigrants from Iran. Mm-hmm. so every every chance I get, I use the language, and of course, I get a very positive response. I think the Iranians are amongst the most appreciative when you speak their language uh, and I have a sense of Iran of two thousand five hundred years of history that I never had before we, we think of Iran today, we think of the mullahs and we think of women all dressed in black and and uh, the horrible suppression of of uh, the demonstrators and it's it 's a lot of negative stuff mm. but uh, I realize there's 2,500 years of history there, interaction with India, with Greece, with uh, Central Asia, with China. Uh, again, uh, I've watched some Iranian movies. They have very good movies. It's, in many ways, the sense of a country with this tremendous ancient history, but yet very modern in a way. Iran is more Western than uh, the Arabic countries, I think, uh, certainly than Egypt, you know, the less Less sort of high bound religious uh, and stuff, and quite quite uh, quite modern in many ways.
1: Yes, <clears throat> um, and have you noticed any similarities between Persian and English? Is there some some words are mm. similar? No.
0: Well, mm. I mean, there's you know, <laughs> there's words like Bechtar is better. Okay, It sounds kind of similar, <laughs> yeah. but no There's no relationship. There's fifteen percent common vocabulary between Persian and Arabic, and also between Persian and Turkish. Uh, But the structure of the language is very much European, unlike Arabic. The structure is...
1: It's an Indo-European language, isn't it?
0: Indo-European language, very, very similar structure, but it has its own thing, you know, like, for example, much is made now in the Western world about gender-neutral pronouns, which to my mind is a silly thing, but... (laughs) uh, in. Persian and Arabic, they only have, not Arabic, but Persian and Turkish, they only have gender-neutral pronouns. Mm. There is no he, she, it. It's just, ooh. Okay. (laughs) doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, that they're more uh, progressive
1: in terms of gender neutrality and stuff yeah yeah
0: that's meaningless but that's
1: quite convenient though isn't it to not have to worry about the genders because i mean you know in for example with french i mean that's a bit of a nightmare exactly
0: arabic has gender but uh, persian doesn't have gender persian has many things if persian were written in the uh, in the latin alphabet it would be quite easy to learn other than the fact that there's not a, a lot of of um, you know common vocabulary like obviously when an english-speaking person learns french or vice versa they have a lot of freebie vocabulary yeah not the case with persian but leaving that aside in terms of the structure of the language it's it's the writing system that's the biggest obstacle
1: Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: i mean it's not an obstacle that's what it is period but but uh, yeah
1: yeah challenge maybe if we want to put it in more positive terms um right what what um do you have any plans to have a go at any other languages?
0: Um, maybe you know. You can, at some point, you know, it's so hard. You keep adding languages, and then that means the languages you learned before you no longer speak them very well. So, at some point, you know. But I am kind of curious about the structure of South Asian languages. So it might be Hindi, or we have a lot of Punjabi speakers in Vancouver. If we get one of those languages at Link, we, we have Gujarati, but I'm not very motivated to learn Gujarati. The, the inconvenience with the Indian languages is they all have their own writing system, sort of. Hmm. So, it, it, at least if, if they all had the same writing system, then it wouldn't matter almost which one you learn because there's some of the northern Indian languages leaving the southern Indian languages aside. So, I might. I might do that. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Okay. No immediate plans. All right. Currently, I'm enjoying bumbling along in Persian and Arabic. <laughs>
1: okay well hey it's really fascinating to talk to you thank you so much for your time uh, no, i steve. enjoyed it okay and right. um well i mean do you want to do a bit of shameless self-promotion at the end
0: well it's just that i enjoy language learning i have a youtube video uh, at least uh, channel called Ningo steve uh so you're welcome to come and uh, watch my videos there subscribe if you want uh, I have this language learning platform, which I uh, co-founded with my son, Mark, called link, L-I-N-G-Q.com, which is where I learn languages. And I think it, it fills a need. It's uh, part of the whole picture. I think anyone learning languages is going to want to do a variety of different things, uh, maybe take lessons, maybe buy some books, maybe travel to the country. And I think link kind of is quite complementary, fits in there.
1: Absolutely. OK, well, Steve Kaufman, thank you very much. And have a lovely day. I enjoyed it, Luke. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Bye Bye for now. So there you go. Learning a language is a voyage of discovery, which is a nice way of thinking about it, isn't it? It's like a voyage of discovery. That's wonderful. That's a a lovely, pleasant image. You can imagine yourself maybe on some romantic-looking ship or something. Not the Titanic. Not the Titanic. The Titan. that wasn't a voyage of discovery, the Titanic. That was more like an arrogant vanity project almost, wasn't it? That was like humans going, we've built a ship that's unsinkable. No, I'm not talking about that kind of thing, which, you know, that sort of overconfidence, the overconfidence of the Titanic, where you say this ship is unsinkable and then it promptly sinks. No, no, it's a a more realistic um, approach and it's a voyage of discovery. So you can imagine yourself taking a leisurely boat ride down some lovely river or something like that. I don't know. But it's a voyage of discovery. That is a nice way of putting it. Or that learning a language is like cross-country skiing, right? A lot of the time, you are on a plateau. So cross-country skiing, that's where you are skiing across country. That's not downhill skiing, okay? Cross-country skiing is the Arguably slightly more boring version of skiing. All right, now I don't mean to uh, sort of have a go at cross country skiers, it does look nice. But cross country skiing is the one where people kind of push themselves along, they're not just going down a hill. They push themselves along. There are two narrow little tracks in the snow, and they use these narrow skis which seem to not be attached properly at the ankle, at the heel. And But that allows people to kind of push through the snow and people kind of go on cross-country skiing expeditions through the forest. So learning a language is like cross-country skiing because I think it should be a, a pleasant thing to do. But also, as Steve said, often you're on a plateau. You might not be constantly climbing or it, it doesn't have perhaps the exhilarating um, adrenaline rush of downhill skiing where everything's moving very fast and you're going very quickly. That's not the way it works with language learning. You go slowly. You, you, you might be on a plateau for quite a long time. Or maybe it feels like a flat surface, but actually you're slowly climbing as you go up a hill or something. And then later on, you can kind of slide down the hill. But it's not quite as Um, dramatic as downhill skiing. And so you take time to enjoy it, to look around and appreciate your surroundings. So if you're learning language, you take plenty of time. You enjoy the process, even though it might feel like you're sort of on one level. You might not realise that you're going up and up and up slowly. And maybe you feel it's a bit tiring because you do have to push yourself forward all the time. Ah, so it's kind of like cross-country skiing. Um, what else? Learning a language is its like being a cow. So you, you eat the grass, so you consume the English, and you chew, chew, chew. You you kind of do your best to digest what you've consumed. And you swallow it, and it goes down into one of your stomachs. So this is if you're a cow and the the stomach works on the the grass or your brain somehow works on the language okay but that's not it that's not the end of the process you might have to you might have to get that grass back again and bring it back into your mouth and give it another chew work on it a bit more and swallow it again and then it moves from this stomach to this stomach so you know you are constantly working on the same things again and again it's not just one gulp Gone. I mean, you're not a crocodile. I've said that learning a language is like being a shark in the sense that you have to always be moving. There's another reason why it's like cross country skiing. You always have to be moving. If you stop moving when you're cross country skiing, it's kind of hard to get the momentum going again. So it's the same with language learning. You basically have to be a shark on skis. Okay? Just always moving all the time. Not a crocodile. Crocodiles eat things in one go, like hum, zebra bang take a big chunk out of a a zebra and then hum swallow it in one go no it doesn't work like that you have to be like a cow yum 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 very slowly eat some grass here chew it digest it have another chew of the same grass digest it again move to another piece of grass enjoy the fresh air you know i'm sure there were other analogies and metaphors weren't there were there there were, I'm sure. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed that that conversation with Steve Kaufman there from Canada, the extraordinary language learner. Um, obviously, you can draw your own conclusions about language learning from that conversation. And, you know, like Steve has, has been criticised before by some people, people who say, well, his approach is a bit vague, and people might say that um, it doesn't that some some learners need more structure than that. And, in, and if you're a very busy person, taking Steve's leisurely approach might not work for you. Okay. But what we do know is that everyone is different, right? So what works for Steve might not work for you. But I think at its core, I think it's true, right? That if you can spend time with the language, that it's going to pay off. That it is practice plus time, multiplied by motivation, practice and time. Okay, and um, you know you've got to just find out what works for you and do that. Like for me, for example, I've found that graphic novels are a great way to get French in into me. It's a great way for me to eat French, as it were. Um, you know, I've tried lots of things with French, and a lot of them just don't seem to click. But graphic novels that's working for me. So, that's great. Also, another th- another conclusion that I take from this, which is also something I've said before many times, it's quite encouraging talking to someone like Steve, who has so much experience of learning languages, um, and his conclusions are very similar to the conclusions that I've had. So, you know, find out what works for you. Relax a bit, and don't, don't beat yourself up if you are not making perfect progress. Don't beat yourself up if you're making mistakes. Don't beat yourself up. You know what beat yourself up means. That's like you know, like to sort of abuse yourself. Not abuse yourself. No, that's not the right expression. To to fight with yourself. Why aren't you better? Smack! You should oh, you made a mistake. You made a stupid mistake. Whack. Don't beat yourself up, okay? Um, relax. And don't be too hard on yourself. Mistakes are all part of the process. Of course, we're going to make mistakes. Of course, we're going to get it wrong and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's just normal, isn't it? Um, Yeah, it is. Enjoy it. Try to enjoy the process. Be interested in everything. Be interested in, in, in not just the language, but in everything else. So, for example, Steve is interested in the history of the country where that language comes from okay he's looking beyond he's going beyond just the language and looking into the history of the country and by being interested in that he that allows him to read a lot in his target language don't rush it give it time So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm a teacher who does some language learning. He's a learner, a language learner who does some language teaching. And it's interesting that his conclusions kind of mirror my own and also gives me further encouragement for this whole podcast project, you know, that I I must be doing something right. So that's good. It made me feel good talking to Steve because... And at the end, um, after I would pressed, you know, stop on the record button, Steve was saying, "Oh yeah, podcasts are brilliant. I really think you're doing the right thing. This is a great thing for language learning. So keep it up." He was very in- enthusiastic and very encouraging, which I which I which I appreciate very much. Um, so just in case you were in any doubt about the value of listening to Luke's English podcast, there it is. I mean, Steve Kaufman has confirmed it as well. So there you are. Listen to my show. I mean, y- you know this already, of course. I don't need to say this because you are one of those people who listens all the way through to the end. But um, good, good for you. That's great. Well done. Nice one. Give yourself a nice slap on the back for that. Good job. Well done. Well done. Well done. Okay, and yeah, keep listening. If even if you don't understand stuff, like how was that for you? Did you did you follow everything that Steve Kaufman said? That the sound. Might have made a slight difference. I think he was his voice was clear. I understood everything he said, but um, he was sitting in a room with a microphone on the desk, and he he wasn't sitting in a soundproofed room. So there was a bit of reverb um, on his side that might have made it a little bit harder to understand him. But I don't know. You can tell me. But in any case, even if you don't understand everything, that's okay. You keep going, right? Even if you feel. Like you got a bit lost. That's all right. You just keep going. Okay. You've got to be like a shark. Keep moving all the time. You're a shark on skis. Okay. Right. You're a cross between a cow and a shark on skis. Like a cow and a shark had a baby and they put that, put skis on it and then made it ski across Norway. That's you. Okay. All right thank you again to Steve Kaufman for, um, for his contribution to this episode. Thank you to you for listening and for being a wonderful listener who listens all the way through to the end. Um, I think that the, uh, the dividends that you get speak for themselves, right? You're getting more English into your brain, and you've got to keep feeding yourself English. And... Um, Good. I hope that I help you to do that. I hope I, I've, I hope you enjoy these English cakes that I prepare for you. You are a the 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 child of a shark and a cow on skis, uh, skiing along, eating cake. Right. Okay. I think that's probably where we'll end this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I will speak to you again soon. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.